we're going to go ahead and get started. Father, thank you for this time we have tonight. We ask you to be with us. Let your spirit be among us. Bless and teach and reach every heart and mind that's listening tonight. God, let the word take root. Let it bear fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. Hopefully, uh, you were with us the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about spiritual gifts. Last week, we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. At the end of that chapter, uh, uh, all the way through to the end of that chapter, and tonight, before we leave the topic of spiritual gifts, I do want to touch on chapters 13 and 14. I think it's very important to understand the overall message that Paul was sharing on spiritual gifts. And uh, last week we we saw that spiritual gifts were uh, essential, but they were not uh, exclusive. They were not to be replacing the ordinary ministries of the church, that even when uh, even Pentecostal churches, churches that operate spiritual gifts, are still, uh, uh, those gifts are still to be in submission to the authorities and the order that is established by Scripture, by the apostles, for the, uh, for the effectiveness of the church, of the ministry. And uh, in chapters 13 and 14, Paul goes on to address a couple of related issues concerning spiritual gifts, and particularly two spiritual gifts. And we'll focus most of our attention tonight on the gifts of prophecy and of speaking in tongues. Uh, But before we do that, we do want to uh, understand the context of this 13th chapter. Now, uh, some people read this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's a very well-known chapter, one of the best-known chapters in all of the Bible. Uh, and a lot of times you will hear this chapter read or portions of this chapter read in a, a different context. I know I've, I've seen it at weddings. I've seen it, uh, uh, and it, it feels like any time a minister has uh, uh, got to preach, you know, like Valentine's Day or something, got to preach on romantic love or... Uh, or love in general, they go to First Corinthians chapter 13, which is okay. I mean, certainly the Word of God can be used uh, for many different types of uh, applications, and that's no different than First Corinthians chapter 13. But the original context of the chapter and why it's in our Bible has to do with this topic of spiritual gifts and the way that the church is to operate and worship and minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this last week, that spiritual gifts are a supernatural element in the ministry and worship of the church. We are dealing with uh, both issues, both natural and supernatural. We have issues that are common, that are of the flesh, and we have issues that are of the spirit, and spiritual gifts are intended to deal with those things that uh, are coming out of that spiritual realm. And uh, we want to make sure that we include them, but we also want to make sure that we understand that spiritual gifts are limited, particularly if uh, you're dealing with a matter of affection, or you're dealing with a matter of desire, or a matter that that pertains to the attitudes and the appetites of the flesh. And so understanding, if we go back to the end of chapter 12, the last verse of chapter 12, verse 31, Paul says to eagerly desire and covet the best gifts, the greater gifts, the, the gifts that have more relevance, that have more impact. Uh, in the circumstances that you're in. But, he says, I will also show you, or I will show you a more excellent way, or uh, a way in which spiritual gifts can operate better. So if you think of 
uh, you know, a, a typical uh, worship service or a typical church service, uh, a public service where there's uh, ministry going on, preaching going on, praying going on. Um, what environment, what ingredient will make that gathering together of believers or give that gathering together of believers the best opportunity to do the most effective work to edify the body, to exalt Jesus Christ, and to evangelize the lost. And spiritual gifts are part of that, but the key ingredient that makes spiritual gifts more excellent or more powerful is what he's writing 1 Corinthians 13 about. Um, we, we sometimes think of spiritual gifts sort of in exclusion or, or apart from everything else that we do in church. And Paul is trying very hard to break down that partition that we're building there by making sure we understand that not only are spiritual gifts a part of the, 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 the life of the church, but they are a part of the life of the church that, like everything else the church does, must be subject and uh, must be empowered and must be uh, uh, enriched by the pouring out of the love of God in the hearts of the people. So the more excellent way is not to be understood as a way that's... Uh, it's not an either or. It's not either you can have spiritual gifts or you can operate in love. It's and both, right? Spiritual gifts are most effective when they are ministered in the spirit of love. So one of the problems at Corinth was the spiritual manifestations that were taking place in the body were causing some people to lose the focus on the purpose or the reason why they had been given those gifts. We talked a little bit about this last week, how some people thought because they had been used by the Holy Spirit or because they had manifested a certain kind of manifestation, that this somehow elevated themselves or puffed them up or made them feel like they were uh, more useful, more... Uh, more spiritual, right? <laughs> more spiritual than other people. I had a person tell me one time, she said to me, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. I really didn't know what that meant. <laughs> I wasn't sure how you could be one and not the other. But, you know, we do seem to have this idea that uh, uh, some people are just more spiritual than other people. And in the church, we tend to think of people like pastors, teachers, worship leaders as somehow being closer to God or or, or having uh, you know certain uh, uh, power or certain influence with God that I've, nobody else has, right? And um, certainly, I, I'd love it if that were the case. But the truth of the matter is, as Paul makes very plain in chapter 12 is that you know everybody is of use to the church everybody has a way to contribute to the body and the holy spirit very often will take someone who is not uh, prominent not one of the so-called leaders of the church and give them gifts so that their contribution is of the same quality and of the same effect as uh the pastor or the preacher or whoever so that you know, the church functions best when everybody fulfills their role. But this idea that being having a spiritual gift, particularly a more flashy gift, like speaking in Paul, 1 Corinthians 13 starts with, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, right? So we can already see that in the minds of the, the believers at Corinth, speaking in tongues had become, I don't know what we would use, sort of a status symbol, a spiritual status symbol. And I'm, I'm afraid uh, that in modern charismatic and Pentecostal churches, uh, that is still the case. Um, in some Pentecostal churches, there is more emphasis given on speaking in tongues 
than there is on any other spiritual gift. And in some organizations, speaking in tongues as seen as the only acceptable evidence that one has been filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and so we sort of give this prominence to speaking in tongues that we don't give to the other gifts. I think the only other gift that maybe is, is as or almost as uh, talked about or almost as uh, uh, seen as being uh, uh, special is healing, right? So you look at speaking in tongues and healing, those are, in a lot of Pentecostal churches, those are really the, you would think those are the only two things that the Spirit of God ever does. <laughs> if the Spirit of God is in the service, he's either speaking in tongues to somebody or they're laying hands on somebody to heal them. Now, certainly we acknowledge both of those gifts and we give God thanks for both of those gifts. But this idea of a more of a flashier or a more important gift does betray the uh, the fact that the one who is thinking that way is not really coming to the operation of spiritual gifts in the spirit of love, right? And so Paul talks about how, while a spiritual gift may benefit the one who receives the ministry, so if you have the gift of speaking in tongues and somebody interprets and somebody hears that, their faith might be increased. So a spiritual gift is of benefit to the one who is on the receiving end of the ministry that is uh, manifested through the power of the Spirit. But without love, there is no benefit to the one who operates the gift. In other words, the operation of a spiritual gift in a vacuum does not help that person operating the gift to become a more mature, more dedicated, more uh, more uh, edifying member of the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, some, some cases I've seen that the people who, who were so-called, you know, the most gifted or developed or, 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 or had the most spiritual gifts operating through them, in some cases, not every case, but in some cases, those people ended up becoming almost uh, unteachable and ungovernable, and, and a lot of times they felt like they were they knew more or they they had a, a, a position higher than the pastor or the preacher, and you couldn't you couldn't even minister to them anymore, and you couldn't, and a lot of times they would leave and say, I don't even need the church, I can I got this whatever gift. And would go on. So it's a, it was actually a, a reverse blessing, if you will. It was more of a curse to that person because it, it led them to think of themselves as, as being independent or of not needing any sort of instruction or governance in the church. So if a spiritual gift is to be a blessing to the one with the gift, it must uh, be motivated not by uh, pride or by, uh, you know, desire to, to have some kind of authority in the church, but it must be motivated by a sincere love of those who are in need and need that gift to be manifested. Uh, have any thoughts or questions here on the opening of chapter 13? Thanks, Pastor. Um, I just have a comment just to back up what you have said. And that is, um, there are some individuals, none in particular I'm pointing at, but once the Lord used them, maybe one time or probably two, then as what you rightly said, it's like, I've got it and you don't. So, you know, they take ownership to, you know, what God has blessed them with at that moment. And unfortunately, when... Um, they act at times out of the spirit, you know, because, you know, I wouldn't say there's no confirmation, but it's like <laughs> sometimes they are confessing and yet rebuking and yet praising at the same time. And when one doesn't respond accordingly, 
then they'll make comments which is not nice or favorable. So that is what you rightly said. We have to be careful. There must be love and um, obedience when the Lord chose to bless you in that particular way. My, my, yeah. Amen. Anyone else to speak to that or another uh, comment on that? So I was um, inquiring about one of the spirits. I mean, one of the gifts is like distinguishing between spirits. Can you elaborate on that? Is that basically, you know, say you're walking and you're able to see like a good spirit, like a holy person or actually seeing demons? Is that considered a gift? Like, I don't know how to, I'm just not understanding when it, um, when they mean by distinguishing between spirits. Okay. So, um, so Crystal's asking about the gift of discernment and how that operates and, and how we would recognize uh, the difference between uh, something that's from the Holy Spirit, something that's just out of the spirit of the person, or perhaps even something that's from a demonic spirit. That, that's what you're asking, Crystal? Yeah. Okay. So... Let's look at the criteria that Paul gives us. The first thing, if it's of the Holy Spirit, it's going to exalt Jesus Christ. So he says that in chapter 12, verses, uh, I think, uh, two or three there. No one uh, speaking by the Holy Spirit will curse Jesus Christ. So that the criteria for anything of the Holy Spirit always starts with the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And... If it doesn't focus the attention on Jesus, if it doesn't, uh, and, and that can happen a lot of ways. It can be just, you know, the aspect of Jesus's uh, love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, you know, any, anything that flows from the life of Christ, anything that flows from the cross, anything that flows from the resurrection, uh, that's going to be your first sign that something is from God. If all of the focus or the main focus is on something else, if it's on a person, if it's on that person's uh, um, abilities or that person's fame or power, that's not going to be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only exalts Christ. Christ must increase. Everything else must decrease. Now, a demonic spirit can sometimes uh, masquerade and 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 you know, pretend that they're exalting Christ. But how you will be able to discern that is it won't be the same Christ that you see in the Bible. In other words, they will tell you uh, that Jesus loves you, uh, which is in the Bible, right? Jesus loves us. But they'll also tell you, uh, claiming to speak by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus loves you, and he doesn't care how you live, or he doesn't care who you marry, or he doesn't care, uh, you know, whether you know whether you want to be a boy or a girl. In other words, they'll take something from the life of Christ, from Jesus, mm-hmm. and they'll mix it and twist it, and 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 connect it to something that's not of Christ. And so you can you can see, and this is where the Holy Spirit has to help you sometimes because. Obviously, we, you know, when somebody comes to us, and I think the most common for me, and maybe some of the others on the call can, can speak to us, but the most common for me of the operation of discernment of spirits, when I feel the Holy Spirit helping me to discern spirit, the most common times it happens for me is when I meet people who claim to be Christians. Right. I meet people who claim to be uh, followers of Christ. And if the spirit that's in me doesn't recognize the spirit that's in them, if there's a disconnect there, if, if, if something about them, I can't always point to it, you know, immediately, but something just isn't quite, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but, you know, I feel it. 
<laughs> it, yeah, it doesn't feel like you have the same spirit. And that's, that is how the discernment of spirits works. It, it, it can start with, um, with just a feeling, just the, hey, you know, I don't feel the, I don't feel the fellowship of the spirit here. But then what that should motivate you to do is take a little bit closer look, a closer look at Jesus. So you know what you're looking for. And then a closer look at this person's habits, their life, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I've had many people tell me that they're uh, saved and, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. And I go to church and then they'll turn around and they'll treat somebody else with disrespect or they'll be they'll be profane or they'll be, you know, they'll bring up some tawdry, torrid, you know, immoral story of some sort. You know, these kind of things should be warnings to us. I, I'm not saying that every person who follows Christ is going to be a perfect person. We know better than that. But if a person claims to have the spirit of Christ in them, they're going to resemble Christ in some way. And if they don't, if they're, if they're comfortable lying and cheating and stealing, if they're comfortable going out and partying and with no thoughts about uh you know, how that reflects on their testimony or how that reflects on the message of the gospel that they might, somebody might uh, witness, then I think you have good reasons to, to question uh, the sincerity of their commitment to Christ. But mm-hmm. the spiritual gift of discernment yeah. is, is intended for use when someone is claiming to have a message or gift or something from God. So if somebody comes up to you, and you've probably seen this, Crystal, I think most of us have had this at one time or another, and I'll share my own experience. Uh, I was preaching at another church. This is many years ago. Um, I was preaching at another church, and after I got done preaching, this woman approached me after we had the altar service, and she said, can I tell you something? I said, I'm sure, whatever. And, you know, she took me away and she said, I've got a message from God for you. And she began to tell me about some things that she knew God was going to do and in my ministry and where my ministry was going to go. And, and you know, she just went on for about five, five minutes. And, and, you know, after she was done, I said, well, thank you for that. And as I walked away, uh, the Holy Spirit let me know none of that was from him. <laughs> I wasn't going to pastor the church. He told me I was going to pastor. I wasn't going to do the things. And, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't go back to her and say, you false prophetess. You just, I didn't do any of that. But I knew that whatever she had, whatever message she thought she had for me, it wasn't from God. And that's the discernment of spirits. Anyone else want to speak to that? <laughs> I have another question. Just the last one. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Um, can you have like um, multiple spiritual gifts? Yes. Um, you know, no one's going to have all of the gifts. Well, yeah, certainly. not all, but like yeah. maybe two or. Yeah. If if you two. have the Bible, Paul even says in chapter fourteen, if you speak with tongues. You should mm-hmm. pray and ask for the gift of interpretation. So, what cha- what verse is that? What chapter is that? It's uh, in chapter fourteen. Uh, I can give oh. you the verse here in just a second. Let me flip over to chapter fourteen. But the um, um, so verse thirteen. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. But my understanding is unfruitful. So, yes, uh, your spiritual gifts. Some of them, some of them come. Uh, some of them kind of come together. So, like if yeah. you if you are given a word of prophecy, mm-hmm. in that prophecy, there might be a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. You know that's mm-hmm. attached to that prophecy. So, if the prophecy, let's just you know just a bare bones example, right? If the prophecy is, um, you know, there's going to be a famine in the, go back to Joseph, right? There's going to be a famine in the land for seven years, right? The prophecy is a famine. 
What follows that is the word of wisdom. What's the word of wisdom? You've got seven years to store up all your 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 resources, all of your food and everything you're going to need to survive the famine. You, know, you store it up in, in a barn and put it away, you know. So a prophetic gift and a word of wisdom kind of mm-hmm. come together in those kind of things. So, yes, you can have more than one gift operating. All right. Um, the second section of First Corinthians 13, the, Paul goes on to define various characteristics of love. Love is, uh, and, and most of you have read this or memorized this or, or heard it, but he talks about love uh, being long-suffering and kind and not being envious. And if you compare his description of love in First Corinthians 13 with the fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, you'll see kind of the evidence, like long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. It's also an aspect of love. Um, and, and going on through the kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, but it's also an aspect of love. So basically what he's saying is that the gifts of the Spirit are intended and, and function best when they are used in concert with the fruit of the Spirit. Right, so this is his more excellent way. Let your spiritual fruit and your spiritual gift will grow together. And this goes back to the understanding that spiritual maturity is as important as spiritual gift. Right, spiritual gifts are given that we might minister. But spiritual fruit is given that we might grow. And if we don't grow, if we don't grow uh, and and mature and become more um, uh, grounded and more more fruitful in our ministries, the spiritual gifts will begin to fade. They'll begin to, uh, you know, God's not going to continue to pour into a, a, a dead end, a dry well, right? If, you know, one of the more uh, common issues, and we, I don't know that this came up last week, we were talking about why spiritual gifts seemingly are less prevalent in the church right now than they have been in previous generations. And, and we came up with various answers, but one answer that we could add to that list is... Um, if it's only for show, if it's not producing any fruit, there's no reason for the Holy Spirit to continue to operate, to move, right? The, the Spirit is economical. He's not going to pour resources into a life, into a ministry that's totally self-serving or that isn't growing from the experience and the the edification, this is where the edification part comes in. To edify means to strengthen, to cause something to grow, to become what it's intended to be, you know. And this is reflected in Paul's comments about, you know, when he was a child, spoke as a child and thought as a child, but when he became a man, he put away the childish things. If a gift is not causing you to grow, that it's not being grounded in the love and bringing maturity, and that that immaturity, that you know, that state of sort of when you think of an infant, when you think of a small child, what what do you think of? I mean, they're cute, right? But 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 what? I mean, let let's face it. You know, we all love our kids, but there's no more selfish creature in all the world than a two-year-old child. <laughs> I mean, in a two-year-old's world. Everything's about them. What I want, <laughs> what I I want, what I don't want, I don't want. You know, they 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 have no they have no concept of of the inconvenience or the the difficulty that they cause the rest of the family. Now you can forgive that in a two year old, but when that is still how they are at thirty. <laughs> If they're still acting like everything's about them and they have nothing to contribute other than 
and everything has to be, and, and you know what I'm talking about. I, you know, I've seen this in some churches where, you know, you can't do anything in the church because there's one person in the church that has to have everything their way, that kind of thing. You can't do anything. <laughs> everything in the whole church has to cater to this one person's wishes and will. That's that's a mark of tremendous spiritual immaturity, and that's going to cause the decline of the operation of the Spirit in that church, because the Spirit is given to bring us to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. And if we're not growing and edifying and becoming what we're meant to be, if we're stunted and stagnant and self-absorbed, it is a clear indication that the gifts are doing more damage, more harm than good. All right, so then the third and, and last part, he talks about the enduring power of the love of the Spirit. So we talked a little bit about this previously, about the verse there about spiritual gifts ceasing, but the idea here is that love will continue to mature and bring the fruit of eternal fellowship with Christ, with God in his kingdom. And, uh, uh, you know, when we, when we enter into the kingdom of God or when the kingdom of God comes into this world, uh, there won't be any need anymore for healing, right? There'll be no, be no sickness. We won't need miracles because no one will be needed to be needing to be uh, raised from the dead. You know, for example, uh, just think about it for a moment. There won't be any hospitals, hospices, cemeteries, funeral homes. All those people are going to have to find something else to do, some other, some other way to serve society. There won't be any police forces. You know, uh, there won't be any need for judges or juries or prisons. You know, in this kingdom of God, a lot of the things that spiritual gifts are given to address in the imperfect world and the perfect world will not be needed. What will be and what continue, even when all these spiritual gifts are no longer necessary, is the love of the Spirit. It will be the love that ultimately brings in the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Any thoughts, questions, or concerns on this last part of chapter 13 or, or anything in chapter 13? Um, this part talks about why is the gift in operation these days as it was then. It's still left with some unanswered question or thought for the reasons, may not be all the reasons, but basically the some of the basic reasons why that is what it is. Well, we only have a few snapshots of the early church in the New Testament. We have the book of Acts, probably covers about 30 years. So if you think of the day of Pentecost being when Christ was crucified, which would be around A.D. 30-ish, and then Paul was imprisoned in Rome in the 60s. So you've got about 30 years of church history there. And in the book of Acts, there's mentions of a number of spiritual manifestations and gifts, but that's spread out over 30 years. Then you have this picture of Corinth, where we can see very clearly, at a minimum, tongues and interpretation was really dominant. But he does mention the other gifts, so we can, we can presume that they were in operation. And then Peter mentions some, and Paul mentions some to the church at Rome. So, you know, the truth is, we don't really know how prevalent they were in the early church. We just know that they were there and that they were part of the worship life and the ministry life of the church. Um, in our own experience, through our own lifetimes, have we seen a, a decrease from uh, the earlier generations of Pentecost? Um, 
Yes, in, in some, in, in, in I'd say in the American church, but I think that gets balanced out by what is seen sometimes in the revivals that are taking places in other countries. So my, my, my instinct is to say that the Spirit has always operated in the church and that He always will operate in the church and that wherever He is given uh, uh, permission or give, given opportunity to do so, He will continue to manifest and, and work. Uh, why have we seen a decline here? In the church locally, why have we seen a decline in the church in the U.S.? A lot of it, I think, has to do with some abuses. The spirit has uh, been taken, or, or spiritual gifts have been taken advantage of, have been used to take advantage of uh, people, used to line the pockets of certain organizations and ministries and ministers, used to create confusion. We've done a terrible job as a church of teaching uh, on this subject. And many, many times people are confused. And I think the general, the general um, condition that is needful and necessary for spiritual gifts to operate uh, doesn't often exist in a lot of churches anymore. And that is faith. Faith, expectation, you know, Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, right? What's the last thing Paul says? Now abides what? Faith, hope, and love. Anywhere where you've got faith, hope, and love in abundance, you're going to see spiritual manifestations. But the truth is we have become uh, very doubtful of spiritual gifts in a lot of, a lot of people's minds and hearts. Um, we... We don't tend to, and, and I don't say this, and you know, I, I can't even, I can't even claim exemption because I'm probably as guilty as anybody else. You know, when somebody calls me and they're telling me, tells me that they're sick, I say I, I pray for them. You know, I really do. I believe God will heal them. I really do. But if you just go by the last couple of years, I mean, we're not doing a whole lot of laying on hands. <laughs> We're not doing a whole lot of anointing with oil. Matter of fact, with the COVID protocols, people are basically afraid to even come up for prayer in, in, in a lot of churches. So, so I, I, you know, I, and I don't mean to say that it's not right to be con, to take precautions and to, to be, uh, you know, to have the mindset of, you know, we need to maintain some social distance from time to time. But, you know, faith Hope and love, when you put these three in mix together, they light that fire. When's the last time we had such a condition in the church where we just refused to go home until we got an answer from God? Or we just, we just refused to leave the altar until God moved, until God dealt with whatever the situation or problem was. And, and, you know, we, we, we must disabuse ourselves of this idea that we can show up, go through the routine, punch the punch the clock of our of our of our church, and still expect the Holy Spirit to move with any real freedom or authority or power. The Holy Spirit above all things, I know Christian was talking about discernment earlier. We have the gift of discernment and the Holy Spirit gives to us, but the Holy Spirit always is discerning. And uh, he knows our hearts. He knows our minds. And we're not going to fool him. If we're not hungry, he's not going to feed us. If we're not desperate, if we're not truly knocking, asking, seeking, you know, he's going to go find a place. And I hate to put it this way because it sounds so... I don't know, it kind of just sounds so matter-of-fact, but the Holy Spirit knows when he's not welcome. And he's going to go find a place he's welcome, or find a place he wants, that wants the Holy Spirit to truly be a part of the life of the church. And in a lot of churches, that's just not the case anymore. We tend to see a move of the Holy Spirit now as a disruption, an interruption, 
rather than the whole reason we come together is to is to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. Anyone else want to speak to that or have a thought there? Looking at verse 8, I'm wondering if that's the verse that a lot of the uh, denomination use to support their view of saying that tongues and prophecies, all of these gifts of um, um, have ended are ceased and no longer in um, in use in the church, or should be used in the church. Yes, some of them do use verse 8, but yes. the unfortunate thing is they don't connect it with the rest of what Paul is saying. And, yes, know, that's I one of the dangers... Yeah, that, that, that's one of the dangers of uh, cherry-picking your verses in the Scriptures. Paul gives us the conditions, the conditions for the prophecy in tongues and knowledge to cease and vanish away is when the perfect has come. And he goes on to describe the perfect in two conditions. The perfect is when we see face-to-face, and the perfect is when we know as we are known. Now, that word perfect, fullness, maturity, uh, reaching the full fruition of what the church is supposed to be, I, as we as individual believers can reach a state of maturity, but the church itself will not achieve this perfection until Christ himself comes. And I think uh, until he comes, uh, we have every reason to believe that prophecy and tongues and knowledge are still vital, necessary. When when we get around to talking about prophecy, we're going to really under, try to understand how vital it is. Every opportunity that we have, that we hear from God, and the people who say, Gifts have ceased, and, and this was just for the apostles, and this was just for the early church. Uh, just think that through. How many times, or how many different churches or denominations will read the same Bible, right? The same New Testament, the same Old Testament, and yet come to completely different viewpoints on key doctrines and key teachings. How do we resolve that? How do we resolve? We we make the argument, you know, what what's the favorite argument we make, you know, once saved, always saved versus free will and and uh, conditional election, right? We're reading the same scriptures. <laughs> We're reading the same commentaries. We're studying the same Greek words. We're doing exegesis on 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 every passage. How do we ultimately resolve the differences of opinions in the church? We've got to hear from God. And this is not just for the Council of Nicaea. How do we, you know, when when we have a dispute now about whether Jesus would approve of this or that, you know, sometimes you can't always win that argument or come to a conclusion just by Scripture alone. And I know that's kind of controversial because we've all been taught that the Bible is the answer to every question in the world. Right? Where were the dinosaurs? I don't know. Look in the Bible. You know, when when did Adam and Eve, uh, you know, leave? Uh, guard? You know, we, we have all these questions that we've been taught. The Bible has the answer. Well, yes and no. Yes, the Bible has the answer to God and Jesus and salvation and 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 heaven and hell, Bible is the absolute answer to that. But the Bible isn't the answer to, or the Bible is silent, or the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about a lot of things. So we, but we still need guidance on those things. We still need direction on those things. So we still have to hear from God. And the Bible was never intended to replace the Holy Spirit. I mean, just think how that sounds. How that how that would actually work. 
if you have the word, but you don't have the spirit to help you understand, what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? He will lead you. He will guide you. He will show you all things. If, if we don't have the Holy Spirit to help us interpret the word of God and share and speak, and, and you know, then it, it would be dangerous. It would be dangerous for me to get into a pulpit or on this class, on this line, to teach the Scripture if I did not have the Holy Spirit helping me to explain it, to apply it, to, to help you. And, and it would be dangerous for you to sit there and listen if you did not have the Holy Spirit to help you understand it and grasp it and clarify it to you. If we relied exclusively on our human abilities or our human understanding, as many do with the Bible, every false doctrine in that, that, that's derived from Scripture is because somebody is applying human logic to it or demonic logic to it rather than letting the Holy Spirit speak to them about it and open their heart and mind to it. And so to produce that maturity of knowledge, to produce that unity of faith, we must have the operation of the Holy Spirit working alongside with the Scriptures and with the church governmental structure and with the traditions that were passed down from the apostles. You can't take any piece of it out and expect to be able to grow a healthy, functioning, effective church. Uh, and, and so the Holy Spirit, yes, there will come a day when we will see God face to face and we will no longer need the spirit of discernment or the word of wisdom. There will come a day when we will know as we are known. And so we will no longer need prophecy or knowledge or tongues and interpretation. There will come a day when there will be no hospitals, no cemeteries, no funeral homes. We will no longer need the gift of healings, miracles. But as one who was visiting the hospital last night, that day is not yet. We still have people hurt. We still have people sick. We still have people. And this is the problem when people apply that. If you're going to use this, or if you're going to use the scripture to say, when the perfect is come, to apply to the church or to the uh, the Bible or to the community of Christ, this idea of perfection of knowing as we're known and seeing face to face also implies that the other gifts. So the only reason for the gift of healing to cease would be what? If everybody was in perfect health. The only reason for the gift of miracles to cease is if there was no more conflict, no more war, no more uh, man against man, woman against woman. You know, you know, the reason why that interpretation fails to do justice to Paul's teaching here is because you cannot apply it universally. You can't apply it to every gift. Maybe we could argue and I have argued, and we've used it in this class. Do we need the prophetic gift as it existed in the days of the apostles or in the days of the Old Testament saints? No. That was a foundational gift to give us the scriptures. No one who's prophesying today is what they're saying to be counted as equal to or in place of the scriptures. But do we still need prophets? Yes, because the scriptures have to be clarified. They have to be interpreted. They have to be applied. And sometimes the gift of prophecy isn't just quoting the scripture, but it's quoting the right scripture, right? There's a scripture that sometimes will unlock a person's faith. There's a scripture sometimes that will convict a person and it's the Holy Spirit who brings, what did Jesus say? He will bring all things to your remembrance, right? 
So he said, don't worry about what you'll say when you're hauled off into the courts. The Holy Spirit will speak through you in those times. Well, are Christians still going to court today? Are Christians still being put on trial for their faith? If they are, then we still need the Holy Spirit to fill our mouths in those moments, like Paul was before Felix, right? <laughs> you know, almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian, right? Or maybe that was Festus, one of those governors. So if the situation is the same today as it was then, and God is the same today as he was then, then should we expect God the Spirit to do for us today what he did for them then? And I think the only reasonable answer to that is yes. Okay. Um, well, we took up our whole hour <laughs> on 1 Corinthians 13. So we will, we will go one more week because I do want to get 1 Corinthians 14 in. It, it is important. So we'll, we'll put a pause on it here and we'll pick up next week with 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, one more question. I don't know if maybe it's going to be for this question. I just relate to this question, but um, Pastor, is it that um, the tongues, tongues are languages, not known by the speaker, but um, it, it, it's a language known somewhere else. <laughs> yes, a tongue is an intelligible speech. And, and we'll probably get more into that next week. But sometimes what you hear some people call speaking in tongues is, let me say this carefully, it's, it's not recognizable as an actual language. And I think we want to be a little bit careful now. Certainly, Paul mentions the tongues of angels, so I don't know if any of us would recognize an angelic tongue if we heard one. But, um, the, you know, there's sort of a practice these days. Some churches endorse it. Some do not. I am in the do not category of just repeating certain phrases or certain praises over and over and over again or faster and faster again until they sort of begin to sound like speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. That's not uh, a biblical practice. I want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. And that's not how one gets filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to make that clear. Um, mm -hmm. If you get the gift of tongues, it will be a real language of some sort. It may be a language that's spoken only by, you know, some remote tribe on some other side of the world. It may be a language that's spoken by half of Europe, you know, but it will be a language. Um, if it's not a recognizable language, then the odds are very strong that it's really just for your own personal edification and worship experience and it's not to be uh, given out as a message to the whole body. Um, but we'll go into deeper detail on some of this when we get into chapter 14. Anybody else want to have a thought there, a question there? Um, Pastor, I just want, um, I know this probably might be dragged out, but in referring to what um, Brother Keith was saying, um, I know that sometimes when I speak in tongues, I it's not always the same. It's like I understand what I'm saying. And um, I did have an experience where um, I was praying in a very small group. Of, uh, it was just like three, two people. And um, and the other person was interpreting and saying exactly what was going through my head and on my heart. 
So that experience, and then there's times where it's it's not like that. And as you spiritually mature, does that change? Like, do you become, as you stated, do you become, like, it interprets into an actual language other than repeating the same word? You're right. It is It is a longer conversation. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll give you, I'll give you the, I'll give you the condensed Reader's Digest version. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. It, in the Bible... Tongues is given in three um, applications. So we have the day of Pentecost. We have the house of Cornelius. We have the Samaritan uh, revival. We have the Ephesian disciples, Acts chapter 19, where tongues was the sign to the people that those who were speaking in tongues had been filled with the Holy Spirit and had been accepted by God, their faith in Christ had been accepted by God, and that they were um, or, or, were to be regarded as of equal spiritual stature as everybody else. Uh, this is what called, we call it the initial evidence. So that's Tongues 1.0. Tongues 2.0 is a personal worship language or personal worship way of expressing your worship between yourself and God, that when you have, uh, you know, when you, are, uh, when you are in a position where you don't know what to pray or how to pray or you're feeling that you don't have the right words or the right way to express what you're feeling, the Holy Spirit will help you and sometimes speak for you and speak through you to encourage you, to, to give you peace, to, uh, uh, to strengthen your faith, to let you know that God, you know, to, to feel the presence of God, the love of God, uh, and, and just, just a way of edifying yourself and encouraging yourself in the Lord. That's you know sort of a personal between you and God way of praying and worshiping. So that's tongues 2.0. And then tongues 3.0, which is what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians, is um, God speaking through you to other people, to give a message through you to other people who... Um, when they hear that message, mm-hmm. they'll be convinced or convicted or challenged or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Now, for that to work, it either has to be those people either have to understand the language you're speaking mm-hmm. or there has to be an interpreter, right? someone with a gift of interpretation who can take what you're saying and translate it into the language of the people who are hearing it. So... Mm-hmm. We'll go in a deeper dive Sorry. into yeah, those categories <laughs> next week, but that's the basic way to divide the doctrine of tongues. Evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, personal prayer and worship, language with God, public preaching or sharing or prophesying of a message from God that must be interpreted. All right, well, we have... We have set the table for next week. So I know you will all be back and we'll be excited as we go through chapter 14. Good night all. God bless. We'll talk with you next week. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and on Wednesdays at 7.45 p.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 
31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.